Romans chapter 3 is where we will continue our study of the book of Romans. People are rightly concerned about contracting the coronavirus. Our government is doing the best they know how to mitigate the impact of its presence in our country. Warnings have been issued. Protocols have continually been updated. And appropriate reordering of our daily norms has taken place. Though most of us are not in terrible danger if we were to contract the virus, we all want to see the virus contained or eradicated. We do not want to be a part of its spreading. There is, however, a more severe epidemic. It is a problem that is universal, powerful, and pervasive. It is called sin. Now you may object to me calling sin an epidemic. That's fine if you want to object to that analogy. But we are all impacted by sin, participants in sin, and needs God, need God's merciful and gracious remedy for sin, which just so happens to be our text of Scripture for this morning. Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 9. It's been read once already. I will read it again. God's Word says, What then? Are we Jews any better off? No. Not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their tongues, or their lips, excuse me. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Paul continues his discussion regarding the scope of sin and people's need for the Gospel. This is what he's doing in this section. In the last section, he answered the hypothetical question, is there any advantage to the Jews? Is there any advantage to the Jews? Yes, yes, you have the promises of God. This is an advantage. But, he proceeded to make sure they did not rely upon promises without faith. He now asks another question similar Are we Jews any better off? And he says, no, not at all. So we have to ask the question, is this contradictory? 
Is he contradicting himself? Yes, you have the oracles of God. You have the promises of God. You have advantage. And then he answers the same similar question. He says, no, not at all. Well, I think we can answer this tension this way. Jesus made this statement in Luke chapter 12 and verse 48. Everyone to whom much was given of him, much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. With the clear revelation of God and his purposes, there is more responsibility. So while it is an advantage to know who God is, while it is an advantage to know God's plans, promises, and purposes, without acting upon those, we are not benefited. In fact, in fact, you can sense in the ministry of the Lord Jesus, our Savior, that there is a ratcheting up of responsibility. You remember these words when Jesus rebuked Chorazin and Bethsaida in Luke 10? Listen to what he says. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. In other words, because Jesus demonstrated His power in their presence, their responsibility ratcheted up even more so. While the truth, having the truth, knowing the truth, is a benefit, the real benefit comes through acting upon the truth. So Paul does an expose in these verses, an expose on sin. We want to note five truths Paul teaches about sin from these verses. First of all, the dominating rule of sin. Look again, please, at verse 9. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. Under sin. What does he mean that we're under sin? Well, the Bible gives consistent testimony to this concept, I would say. And I refer often to what God has taught on this from early on. I refer you to what God taught Cain after he brought a presentation of fruit to God and God was not well pleased with Cain's offering. God told Cain that sin desired to rule over him, but he was to rule over it. Genesis chapter 4. The Bible tells us over and over again of sin's desire to rule over us and, quite frankly, its ability to rule over us before our redemption, before being spiritually born. Before God makes a person spiritually alive, sin is said to be able to reign over us. Take a look at Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. We'll start in verse 20 just for a little context. It says, Now the law came 
in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin, as sin reigned in death, as sin ruled over spiritually dead people, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Those who have not come into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ find that sin reigns over them. In fact, he'll further say that it enslaves them in chapter 6 and verse 6. Look at what he says. We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. So sin enslaves those who have not been redeemed. Similarly, he tells us in verses 12 through 14 of Romans chapter 6 that sin tries to dominate us. Look what it says in verses 12 and following. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no or will no longer have dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. One writer, Thomas Schreiner, made this statement. People are described as slaves to or freed from sin. Slaves to or freed from sin. We all know. We all know what it felt like to be under the power of our own sinful desires. As believers in Jesus Christ, we have been freed from sin's dominating power. But, we do not forget the power that it once held over us. Can you bring yourself back to those moments in your mind when sin ruled over you? This should give us great compassion for those around us who have not experienced deliverance from the power of sin and death. Head back to Romans chapter 3. Sin has a dominating effect over those who do not know the Lord Jesus and it still seeks to have a dominating effect over those who know Jesus Christ as our Savior. We move a little further in his expose and we understand this. There's a universal corruption of sin. Universal corruption. Again in verse 9, for we have already charged that all, all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. Verse 10, as it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. Verse 11, no one understands. No one seeks for God. Verse 12, all have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. No, not even one. He'll follow this up in verse 23, and he'll say, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This flurry of verses gives us some sweeping statements. Man is not righteous. Not 
wise, does not seek proper worship, is not fruitful and is not good. Men of their own resources is not holy and righteous and good before God. Paul told the Ephesians that we were dead. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. Jesus told Nicodemus that he needed to be born again, born from above. The question should be asked, why does Paul say no one seeks for God? You've undoubtedly spoken to someone who has said, oh, I've I've been looking for God all my life. And I say to you that that is contrary to what the Bible reveals. It may be that you've had a nice long journey. It may be that that, um, there's been some pursuit from within you toward God. But understand this, that doesn't come from within you. That comes from above. God has graciously worked within you to seek Him. It's a beautiful and a wonderful thing. Our sin and our sin nature blinds a proper view of God. Just like Adam and Eve, after they sinned, we try to cover ourselves and hide. This is why Jesus made this statement in John chapter 3, verses 19 and 20. People loved darkness rather than light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. This is why we don't seek God, because when we seek Him, we know we'll be exposed. The light exposes our sin, and we don't like to be vulnerable. But I'll tell you, friend, we need to be vulnerable. It is good. It is good to have your sin exposed. No one likes it, but it's good and it's necessary. For without the exposure of our sin, there will be no understanding of our deep, deep need. We must have our sin exposed so that we'll turn from our sin and receive from God the only offering that can result in eternal life, which is to turn to Jesus Christ who lived for us. Who died for us who was buried for us and whom God raised for our justification. We need our sin exposed. And Paul is exposing our sin. He says, you are a sinner. He says, I am a sinner. He says, he is a sinner. He says, your neighbor is a sinner. He says, your mother is a sinner. Your aunt is a sinner. Your sister is a sinner. We are all sinners and we're in desperate need of the provision that only comes from God the universal corruption of sin. In addition to sin's power and universality, Paul proceeds to describe sin's pervasive influence. Look again at these verses. The pervasive influence of sin. Verses 13 and 14. He says, Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. And so he lets us know that our entire speech pattern is infected by sin. James tells us a very same thing in James chapter 3. In verses 15 
through 17, Paul is going to speak about our pathways. He says this in verse 15, Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. So everywhere we go, the things that we're pursuing, these are demonstrations of sin's pervasiveness. There's not a thing we're headed toward, a thing we're speaking that does not, is not impacted by our sinful nature prior to our salvation. And oftentimes, if we are not careful and yielded to the Spirit of God, it still impacts us today as believers. In this section, Paul alludes to and quotes numerous Old Testament proofs for his thesis. He's telling us that all have sinned, and he's telling us about how, how it impacts every part of us and how it's impacted every one of us. And he goes on to prove from the Old Testament time and time again that this is nothing new. That this theology that he is espousing is not new. It is woven into the pages of Scripture. So, with that being said, since we're in a nice Bible study, relaxed setting, you're sitting at your table or maybe on your couch, wherever you might be, you have your Bible on your lap, I want for us to notice a number of items from the Scripture as we see Him reason from the Scriptures about the influence of sin in the lives of people. First of all, He makes reference alluding to Ecclesiastes 7.20. This one will be on the, the screen. It says this, Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. You can definitely see the impact of Ecclesiastes 7.20 in these verses. Also notice, please, Psalm 14. Take a look there. Psalm 14. The first three verses of Psalm 14 he makes great reference to in these texts of Scripture that he quotes. Psalm 14, beginning in verse 1, where... David pens God's words, inspired by the Spirit. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there, is, if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good not even one. Look at the fifth psalm now. And verse 9. For there is no truth in their mouth. Their innermost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Look at Psalm 10, please. The tenth psalm. And verse 7. His mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. How about Isaiah 59, please? Isaiah 59. So you can tell that Paul is conversant, obviously, in the Old Testament text. He is very well aware of how God has conveyed these things previously, and he compiles them all into one spot as he proves the truth that we are universally corrupted by sin and how it pervades our very lives. Verses 7 and 8 of Isaiah 59, it says, Their feet run to evil and they are swift to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Desolation and destruction are in their highways. The way of peace they do not know and there is no justice in their paths. They have made their roads crooked No one who treads on them knows 
peace. He's going to go on to quote Psalm 36.1, but we're going to hold on to that for just a moment. Paul is ensuring that his readers know that his warnings about their sin are warnings that God has been issuing well before they were alive. His anthropology, his doctrine of man, is not new. His harmatiology, his doctrine of sin, is not new. Men are sinners. This is truth. And sin impacts all of our faculties. It impacts our thinking, our speech, our pursuits, our ways, and our actions. Back in Psalm, excuse me, uh, Romans chapter 3, back in Romans chapter 3, he's about to get to the heart, excuse me, the, the impact that our sinfulness makes. The impact that our sinfulness makes. Now it's interwoven throughout, and we've read the text a number of times now, so these will all be very um, familiar to us. The terrible impact of sin. So now not that it's there, not that we're all corrupted by it, not that it pervades our, our thoughts, words, and deeds, but now what it results in, the terrible impact of sin. In verse 12, he speaks about people becoming worthless. In verse 13, their tongues are deceitful. In their, their lips are venomous. In verse 14, their uh, mouths speak curses and bitterness. In verse 15, feet that are shedding blood, swift to shed blood. Now this is impacting others around us. And then in verse 16, uh, they, their paths are ruin and misery. So this is what's happening as a result now around them and in them of their sinfulness. Sin ultimately produces terrible things. Sin may be the comfort zone of unredeemed man. A comfort zone, but in that comfortable zone of being in sin, the, the wake that it leaves both in them and around them leaves terror and distress. You know, so much of what man produces is unintended in its consequences. You think about the drunkard. He didn't mean to kill the family when he was driving drunk and destroyed the lives of others. The teenager did not intend to become addicted to drink or addicted to drugs or addicted to pornography. They didn't intend for that. In unintended consequences. And then, of course, we're all very familiar with those whose sinful actions have, are very much intentional. The thief who breaks in and steals someone else's property. The man or the woman who is involved in adultery with another. Hurting that person. Hurting themselves. Hurting spouses. The person who cheats on their income taxes. The, the list of these things is endless. There is a terrible, terrible... Uh, Damage that results from people's sin. Yours, mine, and our neighbors. Our sin always 
impacts others. Later, you can refer and remind yourselves of the sin of Achan from Joshua chapter 6 and 7. The impact of sin. Well, these are all wonderful truths to understand because we want to view sin the way God views sin. We want to come to the place where we are despising our sin. Despising our own sin. Recognizing the wreck that it is. Recognizing the problems it causes. But we have to understand, and Paul is about to tell us, the root cause of sin. And we see that in verse 18, which is a quotation of Psalm 36, verse 1. There is no fear of God before their eyes. There is no fear of God before their eyes. This is the root cause of sin. My friends, this is at the heart of the issue. The fear of God is not about cowering like a puppy dog who just peed on your rug or the puppy who just ate your shoe. The fear of God is understanding who He is and seeing ourselves in light of who He is as who we really are. Man needs to see God for who He is. God is infinite. God is eternal and controlling that which is eternal. God is almighty. He is all wise and He is everywhere. He created the world. He sustains the world. And He rules over the world. He has a right to declare what is right and wrong. And He has a right to hold man accountable for the standard that He has set up. These elements are truth. When we see God for who He is, we then see ourselves for who we are. We are not infinite. We do not rule over time. We are not all-powerful. We are not creator, sustainer, or ruler. I have no right to declare of my own accord what is right. I will stand before God. They have no fear of God. There is no fear of God before their eyes. They don't see God for who He is and then see themselves in light of that. When we see ourselves in light of who God is, we realize that we fall short of the glory of God as sinners. So we want to know what He says about this. What do I do with my sinfulness? Our human conception, this is, this is natural. Well, I will follow the rules. I will fix this. This is our natural way. The more we try, the more we see our inability to fully comply with this. When we're honest. Paul tells us in verse 19 of Romans chapter 3, 
that the law, the rules, bring us to realize that we are accountable to God. We are guilty before God. Look at verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Now the word held accountable is from the Greek word hupodikos, which means under judgment, one who lost his suit. So held accountable is a little vague. The the term really should be guilty. Let's read it properly, at least my understanding of what's proper. The whole world may be held guilty before God. All have sinned. We're all under sin. No one seeks God. No one is righteous. We are all going out of the way. We have all become worthless. No one does good, not in God's eyes, not even one. We come before God, standing there as guilty. This is Paul's point. His point is to make us vulnerable. Because of your theology, you probably don't feel that vulnerable to a pandemic. Maybe you do. I don't know. I don't know what your personal feelings are. I don't feel vulnerable. I'm younger. I'm fairly healthy and fairly strong. And so if I were to be infected with the coronavirus, I think I'll be okay. I don't want it and I don't want to pass it on. But at this time in life, this vulnerability should point us to a far greater vulnerability. 100% of this nation will not get the coronavirus. Not likely. 100% of this nation, 100% are sinners. 100% of sinners will eventually die. And 100% of these sinners who die will stand before a holy God and give an account of themselves. And if you stand there one day and God declares you guilty as you and I deserve, you will spend eternity under His punishment separate from Him. You should feel vulnerable and Paul wants you to feel and God wants you to feel vulnerable because we are all under sin from birth until we're redeemed well what can the law do to help with this spiritual epidemic Paul answers this question in verse 20 He says, for by the works of the law, no human being will be justified or declared righteous in his sight. The works of the law will not prepare you for that day you stand before a holy, righteous, just God. 
the works of the law declare you are a sinner. The law will not prepare you. The law cannot justify you. It does not prepare you for a not guilty verdict. You and I need to be justified by faith in Jesus Christ. Paul has been preparing us for this. Since verse 18, he's already given us the headliner earlier than that. I'm going to tell you the Gospel. I want to tell you how you can come to know God. How you can have a perfect and pure and eternal standing before God. I want you to know how you can be deeply rooted and confident about one day standing before God. You can stand in righteousness before Him. That's why I want to declare you, I'm, I'm urgent to, I am desirous to depart, impart to you the Gospel. And then he goes on and says, wrath comes on unrighteousness. You are unrighteous. Everyone is unrighteous. And the law will not help you deal with that unrighteousness. But the Gospel, the Gospel of Jesus Christ, God through the Gospel prepares you to stand before God and rather than be declared guilty, be declared righteous. And this is what he turns his attention to next in verses 21 through 24. And really, through the end of chapter 8, he's going to declare a long section of the gospel. But we're going to just capture it with these few short verses, 21 to 24. But now, the righteousness of God has been demonstrated or manifested apart from the law, because the law doesn't bring it, Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness, listen carefully, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for who? All who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified by grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. My friends, it is right to take proper precautions for the pandemic that our world is facing. We are trying as a church to care for you and for our neighbors by taking steps to prevent the spread of the coronavirus. The problem of sin, however, is not as easily eradicated because 100% of people are participants in sin and affected by sin. The only solution to our sin problem is admitting our sin and turning to Jesus Christ for forgiveness and eternal salvation. The worst that the coronavirus can do is end your physical life. The sinfulness of your heart can propel you to spiritual death and judgment. So what is Paul's call? What is God's call from this text? Turn. Turn from your sin. Turn to Jesus Christ. He'll give you forgiveness. Righteousness. Life. Peace. And certainty about your future standing before a holy God. For an unbeliever, I tell you, Turn from your sin today. Trust Christ today. For a believer, my friend, what joy 
what peace, what thanksgiving should be welling up in our hearts now as we consider the fact that God has redeemed us from our sinfulness, our worthlessness, our unrighteousness, the grave of our tongue and the venom of our lips. He's redeemed us. So we should glory together. We should sing of the mercy of the Lord forever. Yes, we should sing. Let's pray. Father, your word is true. Our hearts know it right well. Your spirit testifies to the truthfulness of your word, for he was the channel through which it was conveyed. Father, I pray for friends maybe listening, maybe watching that do not know you. Help them to sense their vulnerability and their need. And by your gracious spirit, call them to repentance and faith. And for my friends that are listening and watching that are believers in Jesus Christ, dear God, help us to rejoice in the salvation you've given to us and to be ready to testify of this for the benefit of our friends, co-workers, and neighbors and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.